The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I have good news and bad news to start with today, and they're both the same, depending on your perspective. Donald Trump last night gave what is likely to be his last rally ever as president of the United States. If you like the Trump craziness, it's coming to an end. If you dislike it, it's coming to an end. So it's good or bad, depending on your perspective. It was bizarre. It was deranged. It was also really boring. And it took place in Georgia. The point of the rally supposedly was to support the two Republican senators running in today's elections, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. Uh, But down to every detail, the entire event was a farce. David Perdue couldn't even be at the rally because he's in coronavirus quarantine of the nearly 90 minutes that Donald Trump ranted. Almost none of it was about the Senate candidates. It was mostly about Trump, much of it telling lie after lie. It is not an exaggeration to say Donald Trump told hundreds of lies during yesterday's rally, insisting he won at one point, simply citing supposed county level vote count numbers from election night. The crowd completely silent for long stretches of the rally and down to the last element. I mean, even Trump's face more orange than we've ever seen it, despite his pale hands. Every detail could not have been more absurd. And as I like to say, indistinguishable from satire. So let's get right into it. Um, Here is Donald Trump within seconds opening up the rally by lying about the results in Georgia. I want to thank you very much. Hello, Georgia. By the way, there's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. That was a rigged election, but we're still fighting it and you'll see what's going to happen. We'll talk about it. And And this was the theme. Trump moments later saying if Democrats take the White House and then realizing, hold on a second. No, no, no. They're not taking it. We won. If the liberal Democrats take the Senate and the White House and they're not taking this White House, we're going to fight like hell. I'll tell you right now. And the theme was that the crowd really didn't seem to care very much about Leffler and Purdue. They seemed to just be there for Trump. But even Trump got too boring for them for long stretches and they tuned out, which we'll get to Donald Trump then alluding to once again, hoping that Mike Pence can steal the election for him tomorrow. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us. I have to tell you, I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. So this is wild for two reasons. First, that Donald Trump is publicly pressuring the vice president to steal the election. And second, that Donald Trump seems to believe that Mike Pence can steal the election. Pence's role in Washington, D.C. tomorrow, as we talked about yesterday, is really perfunctory. And we're all going to see that tomorrow. So I won't get get ahead of myself. Here is an example of Donald Trump ranting about things nobody in the crowd seemed to understand. And the crowd is silent. At one point, I wondered, did the crowd leave? But they were there just not making a peep. And you've got to swarm it tomorrow. Now, the good thing about tomorrow, it's one state. So you have a lot of eyeballs watching. It's tougher than when you have 50 states and they do it to various various states. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I was leading in 
Pennsylvania by hundreds of thousands of votes. All of a sudden, I was tired. I said, what happened? They'll make Washington, D.C. and other liberal places the 51st, 52nd, 53rd states of the union guaranteeing. You can almost hear the room tone louder than you can hear the crowd. It's it's really wild how dead silent Trump was able to get this crowd to be. Trump then defiantly clarifying he does not concede, even though he did lose two months ago. After all, nothing and no one will be able to stop them. The Senate seats are truly the last line of defense. Now, I must preface that by saying because they'll say he just conceded. No, no, I don't concede. That got the crowd awake. Trump not conceding. That's the one thing he should be doing. And mentioning that is what really gets the crowd fired up. So then this is funny. When Donald Trump did talk about David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, which was almost not at all, but that was the point of the rally in theory. The crowd is totally bored when Trump talks about Purdue and Leffler. Here he is talking about David Perdue, who it wasn't even clear whether Trump knew Purdue wasn't there because he was quarantining. Doesn't matter. You'll see the camera if you're watching pan around. And although the lack of masks is notable, the lack of enthusiasm is as well. Over the last four years, David Perdue has been one of our greatest allies and strongest defenders in Washington. He's a great gentleman. And then the crowd just as bored when Trump was talking about Kelly Leffler, just barely a cheer. Georgia has another fantastic champion in Senator Kelly Leffler. Kelly is a staunch defender of our incredible military. I'm so proud of our military. She supports the wall. And she always stands with the heroes of law enforcement ice. Usually they pump up the crowd noise. I was wondering whether they were suppressing the crowd noise. And that's a joke. They weren't. The crowd was just that silent for much of this rally, a deflated, empty speech. The cringiest moment in the whole thing was probably this moment when Donald Trump called up Republican Senate candidate Kelly Leffler to the stage and she had an announcement to make which was that tomorrow she will object, object to the counting of the electoral votes that got the crowd uh, interested. They woke up for that. Hello, Georgia. Thank you, Georgia. I have an announcement, Georgia. On January 6th, I will object to the electoral college vote. What energy, right? I mean, just the the energy just oozing off of Kelly Leffler there, loudly announcing she will also be making a fool out of herself in Washington, D.C. tomorrow. And Trump then seemed to be visibly struggling to get to the end of his speech. You're going to hear him sort of slurring here, mixing up words. The last 20 minutes were just one of the most uh, 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 poorly delivered speeches that I've seen from Trump. And that says a lot. We have all seen what our opponents are capable of doing. I ran two elections. I won both of them. Second one much more successful than the first. But we can't let this happen any longer. On election night, we were leading by so much. We're not going to have that tomorrow. So then this is the part that's really nuts. For about 20 straight (laughs) minutes, Trump read with terrible inflection and tone, 
alleged voting results from various counties. And here he is wanting to talk about Maricopa County, Arizona, but he's only only able to get out the word Mayacopa. And it doesn't even matter because everybody's tuned out by this point anyway. This is constituents reported that their early or in-person ballots may not have been correctly processed or tabulated in Mayacopa County officials. Yeah, so this was the part that had the crowd completely checked out, just droning on like this for 20 minutes. Here's another part of it. You, you could really hear a pin drop in this place. The committee then heard additional testimony concerning voting irregularities during the 2020 general election, including testimony and a real time test demonstrating serious irregularities with Dominion's voting machines. Three events discussed at this hearing stand out and require a forensic order of the Dominion voting machines in Georgia to be immediately conducted. The one phrase that woke people back up was Trump mentioning Dominion voting machines. The sycophants have almost been trained in a Pavlovian manner. If you hear Dominion that you have to react to, but they were really struggling to remain even remotely engaged with Trump droning on and on about votes and ballots. And then during his wind up sort of crescendo, uh, Trump actually glitches on the word America and he tries to cover it up by flexing his bicep. We have made America strong again. Look at that arm. Look at that. Trump commonly does this. We saw this dozens and dozens of times during his presidency when he sort of glitches out during a word. He'll do something physical to distract from it. He'll flex his arm or he'll slap the lectern a couple of times or he'll turn to the other side of the audience and say, whoa, hey, how about that? Uh, so Trump's final rally, as expected, all about himself. He seemed sort of to try to go through the motions of talking about David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, but he really couldn't do it. And what he did do is spend a lot of time claiming that he won in November. We are very close to the end. Very, very close. And the next question is, what will Trump do between tomorrow when the electoral votes are counted and January 20th when Joe Biden is sworn in? Will we see him at all? Will he tweet? Will he go crazy tweeting? Will he not tweet at all? We don't know, but you can join me tonight live on YouTube, Twitch and Facebook for Georgia Senate results starting somewhere in the 7 p.m. Eastern hour. And then tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern, join me live on YouTube, Twitch and Facebook for the counting of the electoral votes, supposedly the last stand for the Trumpists tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern. Join me tonight and join me tomorrow. All right. This is super interesting and it's really just a pleasure to watch. One of the most prominent people who plans to formally object, sir, I object to the counting of the electoral votes tomorrow is Republican Senator Josh Hawley, because Josh Hawley was, I guess, because he was the first senator to announce he would object. He's received more attention than some other senators who jumped on the bandwagon after the fact. And Josh Hawley went on Fox News yesterday. Good for him. And Brett Bayer actually pushed back on the nonsense that Josh Hawley was touting. And Josh Hawley became visibly uncomfortable. He had that look on his face that Tucker Carlson is known for, where it's sort of like a dog hearing your voice out of the answering machine and kind of like a confusion. Um, and when Brett Bayer starts pushing back on Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley gets that look. Here is Brett Bayer starting with what exactly is the point of you objecting tomorrow or you know Wednesday? Uh, what what do you what is the goal of that? Take a listen. So, so this the Supreme is why Court didn't take up that 
that case either. They did not take up the quick case, uh, the Supreme Court. We've seen courts across the country deal not only with not the standing of different cases, but also the evidence, and some of them Trump, Trump judges. I just want to pin you down on, on what you're trying to do. You know, are you trying to say that as of January 20th, that President Trump will be president? Well, Brett, that, de that depends on what happens on Wednesday. I mean, this is why we have the debate. No, it this doesn't. I mean, the states the by the Constitution say they certify the election. They did certify it. By the Constitution, Congress doesn't have the right to overturn the certification, at least as most experts read it. So Brett Bayer is completely correct. Tomorrow's electoral vote count is ceremonial. Mike Pence's role is perfunctory. The states have already certified their electoral votes. That's the legally binding piece. State certification tomorrow is really ceremonial. And this is where Josh Hawley starts to get a sourpuss look on his face like he bit into a lemon and to start to tell some lies. Well, Congress is is directed under the 12th Amendment to count the electoral votes. There's a statute that dates back to the 19 to the 1800s, rather 19th century that says that there is a right to object, there's a right to be heard, and there's also a certification right, process. That's from we 1876, Senator, and it's, it's right. the, the Tilden Hayes race in which there were three states that did not certify their, their electors. So Congress was left to come up with this system, this commission, that eventually got to negotiate a grand bargain. But now all of the states have certified their elections as of December 14th, so it doesn't, by constitutional ways, open a door to Congress to overturn that, does it? When Brett Bayer knows the example that Hawley is referring to, Hawley realizes, oh, no, this is not going to go that well. And Brett Bayer is completely correct. What Josh Hawley is referring to is a mechanism that's really in place for when some states have not certified the electoral vote. That's not the case this year. Every state on uh, well, what, December 14th. Can you believe it's been a month since that? It feels like days. On December 14th, every state certified the electoral vote. And then listen to Josh Hawley's answer. Well, no, I'm talking about the statute, Brett. There's a statute that says that governs what Congress does on January the 6th. And it says that we have a vote of certification and that we have to we have the opportunity to debate the results, to certify the results. We count them and then we certify. And my point is, this is my only opportunity during this process to raise an objection and to be heard. I don't have standing to file lawsuits. I'm not a prosecutor anymore. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. I, I can't investigate claims of voter fraud on my own, but I do have a responsibility in this joint session of Congress to either say I've got no problem with it or I do have a problem with it. And my constituents expect right, me don't you and have a right responsibility to say to I have your a constituents. Don't you have a responsibility to tell them that it's not going to be President Trump as of January 21st as well? Well, Brett, we're so there Josh Hawley kind of admits the truth, which is this is all I can do. And that's what this is all about. What is there that anyone can do, given that Joe Biden won? And all they can do is virtue signal to Donald Trump that they are trying, that they are trying. So Hawley has definitely uh, he, he seemed to be expecting more of a fawning softball interview from Brett Bayer. Much of the Fox News audience is furious with Brett Bayer for pointing out that Josh Hawley is lying to them. After all, you would think that an audience would want to know if an, an elected official is lying to them. But no, the Fox audience is mad 
that Brett Bayer exposed Josh Hawley's lies, but Hawley's just squirming and it's fantastic and it will all be over very soon. I'm still receiving and we even got some paid super chats during yesterday's Trump rally live stream. I'm still getting messages from people saying totally seriously, David, don't you realize that by Thursday Trump will be the official winner and Biden is going to be in handcuffs? Well, listen, I don't even have to argue. We're down to the last 48 hours. Let's wait and see. And we will see very soon. Let me know what you expect tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Uh, let me know via Twitter where you can find me at Pacman. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. When you see me sitting here at the microphone, oftentimes I'm wearing a shirt by a company called Teddy Stratford. And I love these shirts so much that I asked Teddy Stratford to be a sponsor of the show. And here's why I like their shirts so much. With other slim fit button up shirts, you often get this weird looking gap between the buttons where it looks kind of stretched out. But Teddy Stratford actually has a patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which secures the shirt against your chest so it doesn't look stretched. And most importantly, it just provides a nicer looking fit overall. And the entire shirt is specially designed to really improve the way your upper body looks when you're wearing it. It also has a special type of collar that prevents it from drooping down and spreading open, which is another really great thing about these shirts. All of these things really do a lot to make a big difference when you're looking at a shirt. And that's why I like to wear Teddy Stratford shirts on the show. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15 percent off your first order. If you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout, that's P-A-K-M-A-N. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for covid-19 and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year like many of you and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. So this is just magical. Yesterday, as we already discussed, Donald Trump did what might be his last ever rally as president, and he did it in Dalton, Georgia. And Fox News Channel was on the ground there, and reporter Griff Jenkins was interviewing people. And he starts interviewing some guy with a huge red stop the steel hat who apparently had been camping out 
in a sleeping bag awaiting last night's rally. And as this is going on, there's a guy in a MAGA hat in the background flashing this new white power hand signal with his hand. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. Um, And although it takes about 12 seconds too long, maybe 14 seconds, eventually Fox News makes the decision to just cut the video and they cut to a shot of the White House in which nothing is going on. And I'll explain to you after we look at the clip how we know that this was definitely an abrupt decision made live. They weren't purposely saying, hey, uh, at this point, we planned to show you what was going on at the White House. It was a decision made on the fly to get the white power symbol off the screen. Take a look and then we'll discuss. And the election tomorrow, do you care about that? Are you worried about that? Absolutely. I think everybody in the nation should care about it. It's a federal issue in a way who becomes senators. It's going to have a very big impact on the Senate. I support Senators Purdue and Loeffler. I hope that they are elected. Um, And, you know, if somebody from California can come out here and camp out in zero degree weather in a sleeping bag on the asphalt, maybe a few more voters from Georgia will find the time to get to the polls. And quickly, Blake, do you believe, since you're worried about the stop the steal in election uh, shenanigans, are you worried about the integrity of the election tomorrow for Leffler and Purdue? Yeah, absolutely. I'm worried about it. I just hope that the correct actions have been taken to make sure that this time around the ballot custody is safeguarded and there aren't you know, extra. So after about 14 seconds of that white power sign being held up, they switched to a shot of the White House. Now, we can tell this was a sort of emergency measure, an abrupt, evasive maneuver, because number one, nothing is happening at the White House in the shot. Number two, they keep the White House video up too long to make any visual sense. And number three, if it was on purpose, when news networks switch to a shot of the White House, Either the voiceover or a lower third will tell you why we are looking at the White House. Like, for example, they'd switch to a shot of the White House and they would say at the bottom, awaiting Trump departure from White House or something along those lines. So clearly this was like an abrupt uh, uh, attempt to cover the white power hand signal that was taking place during the interview. Now, hilariously, the 12 or 14 seconds it took to put the to pull the shot off of the screen. I would love to know what the conversation was in the control room. Oh, no. White power sign. Do, do we cut it? No, no, no. That's too abrupt. Let's just wait and hope the guy takes it down. Oh, no, he's keeping it up. OK, let's cut it. Yeah. But what do we cut to? I don't know. Maybe the White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut to the White House real quick. Now, just to do this justice and make it informative, you might be saying white power symbol, the, the OK hand sign ever since I was a kid. That didn't mean white power. How does it now mean white power? And context is key here. We have to be able to, as as intelligent homo sapiens, apply an understanding of context. In most situations, the OK hand sign is perfectly fine. And it would be obvious to everybody that it means OK, not white power. The idea of the hand sign is that it creates a W and a P and we're putting up a drawing of that on the screen. And this dates back to a 2017 hoax from the Internet where it was falsely promoted as a symbol of hate. So understand and a lot of people, if you don't mention this, they get mad. The origins were for an online enclave to pretend that this is a symbol of hate, meaning white power. And that it's not in reality. But then by 2019, it actually lost some of the satire. And there are people who now seriously use it as a symbol of hate. And the point is, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. We have to analyze each situation. Here we have someone 
who's deliberately standing in the background of a shot at a political rally, holding the sign up while wearing Trump gear. Context tells us he's not telling us everything is okay and the weather is great. All right. So whether in this case it's a satirical white power signal or a real white power signal, clearly this guy is not saying great weather, guys. That's what I'm communicating. And even Fox News recognized it eventually. I mean, it took them 12 or 14 seconds uh, and they cut away. What an amazing time we live in, isn't it? Uh, Let's do a little bit of a um, I don't know, talking sense on vaccination, because the vaccination disinformation that is spreading is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not a segment to correct medical misinformation about vaccines. Later today, we'll talk to Dr. Eric Topol about the medical aspects of vaccination. We've done that before. Uh, uh, so so this is not about, oh, the vaccine will give you covid or Bill Gates will microchip you. We've debunked that stuff separately. This is a segment about the political misinformation about coronavirus vaccines, things like Trump delivered a vaccine or Operation Warp Speed is doing great. Uh, thanks to America for the vaccine, that type of stuff. So this is going to be a great opportunity to go over where we are today on vaccination. And the bottom line is the first vaccine to be approved, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, was developed by two Turkish immigrants to Germany in Germany very early in the pandemic before Donald Trump did a thing about the coronavirus. It had nothing to do with Trump. It had nothing to do with the Trump administration, period. Donald Trump has bragged about how thanks to him, we developed vaccines faster than ever before. That has nothing to do with Donald Trump. The reason we developed vaccines so quickly is that the mRNA platform for vaccines, uh, instead of working on dead or weakened virus, works by giving cells instructions for how to make proteins that trigger an immune response. That technology by its nature shortens the vaccine development time. That's why the vaccines both in and out of the US were developed so quickly it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. Uh, so so in terms of development, there's very little to even talk about regarding Donald Trump. Now, what does have to do with Donald Trump is vaccine distribution in the United States, and that's been an absolute and total disaster. Number one, remember that Donald Trump previously promised us 100 million vaccine doses by the end of the year. Last year, 2020, we didn't get there. More recently, the Trump administration promised 20 million vaccinations by the end of 2020. We did not get there. And where we are today, and uh, Bloomberg has a very good vaccine tracker, is that as of a few hours ago, 13 million doses of the vaccine have been distributed. And that term, we're still unclear on, on distributed means what exactly? Only four million, four point three million first doses have been injected. And remember that you need two doses um, with the current vaccines. The second doses are just now starting. So we were supposedly going to have 20 million vaccinated by December 31st. Instead, we have four point three million partially vaccinated by January 5th. This is an abject failure. Now, it's not completely clear what the holdup is. But this is going very much like testing. They lied about testing early and they seem to be lying about vaccines early as well. So for things that actually have to do with Trump, which are vaccination distribution, it's a disaster. There is one other aspect to this. Vaccination is going to remain slower than it has to be 
thanks to Donald Trump. As I told you last uh, the week before last in late July, Trump turned down the opportunity to buy another hundred million doses from Pfizer. So Pfizer said, OK, well, if you don't want them, we'll sell them to other countries. And that's exactly what they did. So instead of getting another hundred million doses in the first quarter of this year, or even in the second quarter of this year, Donald Trump has now salvaged a purchase of 100 million more Pfizer doses from a future shipment, which are due to us by July 31. If we don't get those until July 31, that means that those will not be injected into people until August, September and October. Utterly embarrassing and a total failure. That's the real record of the Trump administration on vaccines. Great things have happened, including the development of multiple effective vaccines uh, and the, and the start of a vaccination program. None of that has to do with Trump where Trump was involved, which is this early logistics program. It's been a failure. It would be hilarious, except it is an utter tragedy of cataclysmic proportions, which is leading to unnecessary death. Hopefully, President Joe Biden will be able to accelerate vaccine distribution. We'll have more about this on the David Pakman Show Instagram page. Find us there at David Pakman Show. You can find me on Instagram as well at david.pakman. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If one of your goals for the new year is to cut back on carbs and sugar, check out one of our sponsors, Monk Pack. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars fill you up and taste like your favorite sweet snacks, but they just have one gram of sugar, just two grams of net carbs at only 140 calories. They have a soft, chewy texture and they come in delicious flavors like coconut cocoa chip, peanut butter and maple pecan or pecan or pecan. It's all of the above, actually. Uh, they're perfect for a quick breakfast, a snack between Zoom calls or a late night treat. Not only are they keto friendly, they're gluten free, grain free, plant based, no soy, trans fats or sugar alcohols, no artificial colors. And Monk Pack is so confident in their keto snacks that they back them with a hundred percent money back guarantee. Try it for yourself and you'll see how delicious these are. You'll get 20% off when you go to monkpack.com and use coupon code Pacman. That's M U N K P A C K.com. Coupon code P A K M A N. You can find the link in the podcast notes. So it's a new year. And for many people, that means new goals around getting fit or losing weight. And if part of that for you involves a low carb or ketogenic diet, then I have something you will want to check out. It's called So Ketolicious, and they're giving you 20% off. So Ketolicious has perfected ketogenic crusts for baking your favorite foods. They make a delicious keto dessert crust, which comes in a chocolate and vanilla flavor. And it's perfect for making things like pies. They also have a premium keto pizza crust, which I've been using at home to make pizzas, and it's great. Uh, it is great to go right out of the freezer. And when you cook it, it doesn't fall apart like a lot of other low carb crusts do. It's high fat, which is perfect for keto, grain free, gluten free, no soy or additives or preservatives or fillers. But most importantly, 
They just taste great. I can tell you firsthand. Just go to davidpackmancom slash pizza. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 20% off your entire order when you use the coupon code Pacman. Welcome back to the David Pakman Show. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, who is founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, also a professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president at Scripps Research. Uh, it's so great to have you on. I really appreciate it. Oh, David, great to be with you. So let's let's maybe start with vaccination and and kind of center our, our conversation there. Um, we have currently uh, two approved vaccines in the United States under emergency use authorization for coronavirus, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, as well as the Moderna vaccine. There are other vaccines that have started to be approved in other countries, all currently. Correct me if I'm wrong. MRNA platform vaccines. There has been much made of the short amount of time it has taken to get these vaccines. This is something that is merely a function of the platform. Is that right? It just takes less time to develop a vaccine under this paradigm. Well, a few things just to clear up there. Yes. So, yes, the mRNA platform did work very quickly within days of having the sequence of the virus that was released uh, from the Chinese scientist uh, in January. Within days, there was already a template for an mRNA vaccine. But there are some other vaccines besides the two that you mentioned that have gotten approval on an emergency basis in other countries that okay. are not mRNA. So for example, the AstraZeneca is an adenovirus vector, not an mRNA. Uh, basically, uh, and, and a couple of the Chinese uh, firm uh, and the Russian Sputnik, these are different. They, they're not, they're, they're using a viral, um, proteins rather than um, the uh, mRNA, which is basically just giving uh, into the muscle a message to make spike protein that's modified instead of the virus. So it's perfect because you don't have to risk any virus. It's just that one component, which is an excellent target. And by the way, David, all the vaccines do have that common thread. They use the spike protein uh, as the primary target. Is there anything what is important? I'll say it more broadly. What is important for the average vaccine recipient to know in terms of the differences for them in receiving an mRNA based vaccine versus the weakened or dead virus based vaccine? Right. So, you know, basically you have uh, two trials that came out first that were very large, you know, 44,000 with the Pfizer-BioNTech and 30,000 plus with the Moderna. They both had 95% efficacy. They both had really good safety profile without uh, concerns there, at least out to two months. And that should cover most of the uh, concerns on safety. So that's kind of the new reference standard for the other vaccines. So the AstraZeneca at the main dose that it's been tested so far had an efficacy of 62% using a viral vector. Um, and then others have come in at you know variable levels, but they haven't had as large a trial experience. So what you really want as a, as a vaccinee, <laughs> a person getting a vaccine, you wanna know how high is the efficacy? How well was it tested? Was it in really large trials with good follow-up? 
these are important concerns because we're seeing some reduction in threshold for getting approval because obviously we're in a very dire situation right now. Yeah. When we hear about uh, numbers like 95 percent, as you are talking about, um, that would suggest that out of every 20 people that get the vaccine, one will not develop uh, sufficient uh, protection against a, an infection. Is it possible to know through an antibody test whether you are in that five percent? And if so, would it be potentially a, a something you could do in, in looking at getting an, another vaccine? If you get the Moderna and you're in the five percent, can you go and get the Pfizer and maybe you'll be in the 19 out of 20? Right. Right. That's a really great question. Um, and actually, I share your uh, interest in having a neutralization antibody test. We don't have one that would tell you for sure that you're protected. Yeah. Because it isn't 100%. In the Moderna trial, which was interesting, for severe infections that would require hospitalization, it was 30 versus zero. So it looked like it was 100%, but those are very small numbers. Yeah. Um, but so. One thing is you want to be protected and and there's not it's not yes or no. I mean, you want to be protected from most importantly is severe infections, but you want to be fully protected. There's another layer of uh, concern here that isn't settled, and that is you could get the virus in your upper airway, particularly your your nose, nasal lining, mucosa, and you could pass it on without that. This is that term of mucosal immunity or sterilization immunity. And so we don't have a full readout on that yet. We have some encouraging preliminary data. So yes, you're right. If we could find out the people who didn't get the ideal response, you could try another vaccine. That's right. And we're, we don't have any you know, commercial assay to get the answer to your question, David. We, I wish we did because then you would, about two weeks or a month after you got your second dose, right. you would get a checkpoint. And then if you weren't um, uh, high levels of neutralization antibody, you would get another vaccine. That would be the ideal scenario. But nobody's talking about that. You're you're the first one that's really brought that out. Yeah. And you, when you start doing the math, if you say, well, what what are the odds that if you've got a room of people? Uh, I, I mean, I think if I understand the math correctly, if you have a room of 20 people and you vaccinate all of them, uh, there's a five percent chance one has no immunity. And it, it is it correct to say there's a two and a half percent chance that two of those 20 end up with no immunity? I mean, is the math that simple? Well, it's not quite that uh, precise. The reason is, is that, you know, these trials were really large and we're only talking about a tiny subset. Right. Who were the first ones to cross the line and get infections. So the numbers as you get much larger could be different. I mean, this is kind of giving you a ballpark. There were highly significant differences, of course. Yeah. But it could turn out to be 3% or 7%. You know, we, we don't know. Okay. There's another part of this story that's interesting to point out, and that is this, the trials are the ideal experience. That is, they're conducted, you know, rigorously with how the vaccines are given. But in the real world, they may have gotten thought out early, you know, they may not have, you know, been cared for the the actual uh, sterile, the uh, the the uh, uh, glass uh, vials, uh, vials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, that were not kept in the deep freeze or yeah. whatever. So you see, it, it, it may be a little different in the real world. Uh, it usually isn't better. It's usually a little worse. Right. 
So in terms of uh, I mean, I'll be very transparent. I think the, the logistical rollout so far has been pretty disastrous. There were promises of 100 million doses in 2020, then promises of 20 million vaccinated today. As we talk, we have about four and a half million first doses that have been given out with question marks around how much, if any, immunity you get from from the first dose, it seems. It's probably some, but but we don't really know. And the vaccine makers are being careful to say it, it's not been tested. At what level do you believe we are going to start to see? And you can answer either or both deaths and or cases noticeably pulled down by vaccination. Right. Well, it has been uh, a, a terrible shortfall so far, as you as you uh, aptly point out, David. Uh, we were expecting at least 20 million people to have had their first dose in December. Right. Uh, and we're not even at quite at five million yet. So uh, there, there is an issue, of course, that their vaccines have largely been delivered. Uh, that is, there's close to 20 million out there now, but they're just not getting in people's arms right. uh, shots. Now, to get this herd immunity, which is the only way to get to uh, herd immunity, not through natural infections, through vaccines, we need to get you know, at least uh, approximately 70% of people. But the good part in the United States, uh, if there is a good thing here, is that we let this virus go with rampant spread. And so we have at least 60 to 70 million people who have natural infection induced immune response. So you now, believe again, that's important now. So that's about three yeah. X the official cases. You believe the real infection rate is about three times the official 20 million or so. That's right. It was just published today, actually, just before we got together in JAMA Network Open, that uh, it's at least 3.2 X of the number. So we wow. are 20 million. So we're, we're about 65 million based on all the, the studies. So the point here is that we could get there faster. Go back to your really great question about what, if we had a neutralization antibody to the virus, to the spike protein. Uh, if we had that and we could say rapidly, you, you have you're coming into your vaccine, you're you're in the line, in the queue and we tested you in a couple of minutes later, say, well, you're good to go. You're, you're you're good right now. You don't need the vaccine. We need to defer you until we get to 70 percent. Now, if we could tap into that 60 plus 65 million people, we can get there a lot faster. But if we don't do that, we're looking at you know, uh, uh, third quarter at best. That means we got to get to two to three million vaccine uh, people a day. A day, right. Plus get them all a second dose. Now, the J&J &J vaccine, which is the Janssen's coming out, uh, you know, perhaps early February, even later this month, if that clicks, that's a single dose. So that will make life easier. Plus it doesn't require freezing. So that will make logistics easier and it will also add to our vaccine supply. But overall, we're not going to get to population immunity um, that we need the faster, the better, especially with this new uh, strain, this new B117. Um, we we got to go fast now. This is a race against a very challenging, formidable, um, uh, highly infectious variant. One last question about the 60 million that we believe have, have been infected already. My understanding is there's still a question as to the, the duration and robustness of the immunity for recovered patients and questions about, for example, if you had a really mild case is how does your degree of immunity compare to someone who recovered from a more severe case? Does it last three months, six months, nine? I correct me if I'm wrong. If if reinfection was really common, we would have 
way more examples of it if the number is 60 million. That seems clear. But what do we know about the duration of natural immunity? Yeah. Oh, you're really on this. This is great. <laughs> so um, the reinfection story, uh, you know, in the world, we have like 35 documented cases okay. by genomics that you you sequence the virus in the first infection. Second, they're very different. We know that it was a reinfection. There's probably considerably more than that. But if you think about the world number of infections, it's really low. Now, that bespeaks the issue that natural uh, immune response to an infection is quite good. Okay. So the interesting thing is the vaccine is what we've written about as superhuman. That is, it's even better. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is the average person, now that we've looked out long enough, has at least eight or nine months of protection, at least. Okay maybe even years, but at least eight or nine months. Now, remember you pointed out 5% of people with the vaccine don't have an ideal response about, let's say. With the natural response, it's more than that. It could be 10%, could be 12, you know, it's, it's, it's more because a vaccine gets a much higher level of these neutralizing antibodies, which is the precious response that drives your protection. Uh, no less, you know, T cells and, and other, you know, response that's part of the um, protection. But most of it's the neutralizing antibodies. So to answer your question, I, you know, I think what we what we can say is if you have a neutralizing antibody, um, if it's still there at good levels, you're you're good to be deferred. I mean, you know, you don't need a vaccine right now. We need that for other people yeah. to get us to this because we, we are unfortunately going to face a vaccine shortage. Uh, unlike Israel, which is the lead, you know, the pace setter, they, they're going to have enough vaccines. They order early. They have a supply. They have enough vaccines for everybody. Yeah, this I country, believe I believe they're at 14 percent already. Yeah, actually, that was uh, as of the third. As of today, they're probably they're going at least one and a half percent a day. So they're they're probably wow. at least 16 percent. They've they've now have all the vaccines you know, they need to get everybody vaccinated. Uh, who's willing, which is most people, of course, there, unlike what we have, which is some hesitancy, resistance, anti-vaxxers. But even with our 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 uh, issues, our biggest problem is getting shots in the arm, getting the second doses at high scale, you know, like we did in 1947 with smallpox, when we right. had six and a half million people in a few weeks. We've got to be doing that now every day throughout the country. So give us a few bullet points. There's so much that could be said about the, the logistics that could be organized. But give us a few bullet points about things that should be done right away. One anecdotal story. My stepmom works in healthcare, but not as a direct provider. She works for a company that that, you know, in, in sort of management, I guess you would say. And she got a call on January 1st saying, listen, we got vaccines for the first responders. We have two vaccines left over. There's no system for us to send these to a for nurses at a different place. We just have two vaccines and they're going to go bad. Do you want a vaccine? And she said, sure. That multiplied by 100 million. It it seems un inconceivably chaotic. So like what are the logistical things that need to happen here? Right. Well, you know, it is uh, crazy that we're not just trying to do everything we can to get vaccines into people. Um, and so we waste, uh, you know, a lot of shots. Um, obviously, you know, once they're they're thawed, if they don't get uh, used, they're they're lost, and we just don't want any of that to happen. So, we need mass events. You know, we need uh, a, an all-out um, effort 
to get you know, a, a huge number of people every day throughout the country. And that, well, that's, you know, getting um, stadiums uh, and big facilities where, you know, just people on an hourly basis show up and quick, you know, get their jab or whether it's mobile, uh, you know, uh, efforts, you know, with, with vans and, you know, whatever it takes. Obviously, pharmacies could help here you know, because they're pretty widely distributed. So the Walgreens and CVS, they should be part of the story as well. But we need, you know, this idea that, um, you know, I have high regard for the new administration, but they're talking about 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Well, that's only 50 million people in, the, in 100 days of the new administration. That's not nearly yeah, it, enough. It sounds so need. good. And yet totally the math added. of it is still falling very short. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's just not going to work. We have to be a whole lot more aggressive. Um, um, and I yeah. hope that's going to change. I, I hope so. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, who is founder uh, and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, also a professor of molecular medicine. Um, uh, Dr. Topol, such a pleasure having you. And I really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. Well, I'm really impressed how well you're on this, David. Uh, you're, you've really uh, I, didn't, I didn't think you were, had a science background, but it sure looks like it. I don't. I, my my, my uh, <laughs> formal training is in business, if you could imagine. <laughs> no, but well, the, I mean, are... listen, this is the it's the issue of our time, you know, and uh, yeah. I, to, for my audience's sake, I must remain informed. Well, you're a fast learner. Great to meet you and great to have a conversation. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. One of our sponsors today is Helix Sleep, and it's a sponsor I'm thrilled about because I sleep on a Helix mattress at home, and it's just the perfect mattress. One of the best things about Helix is you don't have to guess which mattress do I need, which one will be good for me. You take their famous sleep quiz on their website. You tell them your body type, your sleeping position, your back pain issues you might have, and they will pair you with a mattress that will be perfect for you. I took the sleep quiz. The mattress they suggested was exactly what I needed. I often get too hot at night. The mattress keeps me cool. It's not too soft. It's not too firm. The texture is right. And I've just been getting way better sleep. You only buy a mattress every decade or so. Don't get stuck with something that's not perfect for you. And all Helix mattresses come with a 10 year warranty and they'll even come to your house and pick it up within 100 days if you don't love it. But I think you will. All of my viewers will get up to $200 off your order and you'll get two super premium pillows for free when you go to helixsleep.com slash Pacman. That's H E L I X sleep.com forward slash P A K M A N. You can also find the link in the podcast notes for this episode. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. So yesterday we played clips for you of this absolutely ridiculous phone call uh, that Donald Trump made to the Georgia secretary of state asking them to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes and then saying, come on, guys, I just need eleven thousand votes to win Georgia. Um, and certainly that call is impeachable. Donald Trump should be impeached for that. He's not going to be. I don't think anyway he could be impeached after leaving office, but it doesn't seem that there is a political desire for impeachment. But one of the very interesting things that has come out of it is that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who was on that call, he was the one being pressured and he is 
a Republican being pressured to find a way to give Donald Trump the state of Georgia. He said it's unlikely we would investigate uh, or or uh, investigate criminally or uh, ask criminal charges to be brought because we have a conflict of interest. We were involved in the call, but it is certainly something criminal investigation and possibly even charges that an Atlanta area district attorney could do. And this is once again, it's just the tip of the iceberg of what we may see once Donald Trump is out of office. And of course, this should be investigated. Here is the Georgia secretary of state, Republican Brad Raffensperger, explaining since he's involved in this, he really shouldn't be part of the investigation. And he's right about that but says that there are others, including the Atlanta area district attorney, uh, that might be the right outfit to investigate. David Worley, a Democratic member of the state election board, which you chair, has asked you to open an investigation into the call. Will you open that investigation? I believe that because I had a conversation with the president, also he had a conversation with our chief investigator after we did the signature uh, match audit of Cobb County last week. There may be a conflict of interest. I understand that the Fulton County District Attorney wants to look at it. Maybe that's the appropriate venue for it to go. So the the first question, and we'll go through this sequentially, the first question is what crimes might Trump have committed here? And it's actually a long list. And I'm not saying Trump will face charges. I'm saying the list of possible crimes is long federal laws against solicitation of election fraud, I would argue, were broken to prove it. You need to know intent, um, but and, and that is hard to prove. But just because something can't be proven in court doesn't mean that colloquially speaking, you and I can't say, yeah, Trump did that. Uh, federal laws against conspiracy to intimidate, threaten, injure or oppress any person of rights secured by the Constitution. Uh, Georgia state law against solicitation of election fraud arguably was broken and Georgia state law against willfully tampering with an elector list, voter certificate, ballot box, voting machine, tabulating equipment or to solicit others to commit such tampering. So as I told you before, with other Trump investigations, I don't think this is going to go very far, but it may be yet another thorn in Trump's side once he leaves office. I think the most realistic scenario is not Trump ever gets perp walked in handcuffs, not Trump is even ever criminally charged with anything. I think the most likely scenario, if I'm being just, you know, not hyperbolic, but 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 sort of conservative in my thinking with you is there will be investigations into Trump and his organization that will be a thorn in Trump's side for years to come. Now, another interesting aspect of this, why was the call recorded to begin with? We know now that the Georgia officials uh, on the call did the recording and they did it because of their knowledge that Donald Trump previously has lied about the content of phone calls. So the recording was almost like an insurance policy for them, assuming Trump would later lie about what was said. They wanted a record to be able to say, here's what was actually said. So it's all completely embarrassing. And, you know, if only we could have seen this coming, right? Like if back in 2016, when when we were all sounding the alarm and unfortunately there were some on the left and right who were saying "Ah, it won't be that bad. Trump for four years might even get us a true progressive in 2020 that we would all be happy with. Trump will shake things up. He'll sort of bring a different approach. It has certainly been different. There's no doubt about that, uh, but it has been an absolute and complete disaster 
regularly attacking in authoritarian fashion uh, multiple endless aspects of our democratic systems. And undoubtedly, Trump should be impeached after the fact for this. There's no question whatsoever on the merits whether he will or won't be. I don't know. Is it even worth doing? I mean, listen, as I said before, there is a duty to impeach if you believe an impeachable action has taken place. Uh, and we sort of have to separate the potential outcome, which is not going to be very much uh, from from the duty to do what is right as uh, as Congress is supposed to do. But I, I, at this point, we're at a loss and it's simply an emergency to get rid of this guy. We're down to 15 days. We are down to the last 15 days. Different people handle loss differently. There are sore losers. There are angry losers. There are depressive losers. There are narcissists who tend to go more in the direction of I didn't want to win anyway. There's a really broad range of reaction to loss, and it often changes over time. Uh, we are seeing something really interesting on Fox News, which is that suddenly they are all about their feelings and the feelings of conservatives and the feelings of Trumpists, how everybody feels about the election numbers, how everybody feels about the election results, how some of their feelings are now hurt by what has taken place. And you've got to see some of these examples. Here is one from Fox and Friends yesterday morning where Ainsley Earhart, one of the hosts, says, you know, staunch conservatives, they feel the defeated. They has a sad, for lack of a better term. Take a listen. Uh, well, I think people who are staunch conservatives in our country just feel so um, just so defeated because of this election. They do feel like it was rigged. And then to see what's happening in Georgia, that the Democrats could have the House, Democrats could have the Senate but see, and then the presidency. And, and that's the, for a that's lot of the danger. Did you hear that? It's disheartening for staunch conservatives that they lost. Where was this understanding back in 2008? Where was this understanding back in 2012? I don't recall it from these same people. Now, part of the irony of all this is that the right has this idea of the facts don't care about your feelings. That's a meme that they love pushing onto the left. And now they all need time and we need to be careful with their feelings because they are fragile and 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 disheartened by what they are seeing. Here's another while, by the way, advocating for the uh, um, it, essentially for the setting aside of the actual results because they just feel bad about it. Here's another one from yesterday on Fox. This is Senator Ron Johnson, who says we can't just ignore the concerns and suspicions from right wingers, I, I guess, because there are concerns and suspicions. What we hold up Joe Biden's inauguration. Check this out. Absent proof, absent evidence. Republican Senator Ron Johnson says we can't just dis dismiss the concerns of people here. Uh, from my standpoint, we simply cannot dismiss the concerns of tens of millions of Americans that have have suspicions. Wow. We've got to be careful, guys. The suspicions and concerns of these Americans who have fallen for Donald Trump's bogus claims about voter fraud, they need to be babied because they feel bad and they want to put aside the results of the election. 
It's just absolutely wacky. And here's the cherry on top in this last clip. This is from the same episode of Fox and Friends that we looked at uh, in the first clip. Fox reporter Griff Jenkins is in Dalton, Georgia. That's the location of last night's Trump rally. And there's apparently a fan of Fox anchor Ainsley Earhart at the rally. And the fan rushes over and every detail of this exchange is bonkers. Now, of course, neither the reporter nor the Trumpist are wearing masks. The guy actually has a shirt on that says the only thing worse than covid-19 would be Biden 20. And he's hugging Griff Jenkins. And you can actually hear Steve Ducey in the Fox studio. He sounds uncomfortable about what's going on. This is just out of this world. I was going to say go give Terry from Detroit, our fan, a big hug, but we can't do that right Terry. now. You cannot hug him. You can't hug him. Two say, two seconds on my microphone. What do you oh. want to say to Ainsley? We love you, Ainsley. Uh, Terry, I love Terry. Well you, Terry, Terry, I want to talk to you. You came from Detroit. God bless America and God bless the president. He God she bless says you she too. loves you too, and she can't believe you came from Detroit. Why do you come from Detroit? Because I love the president. We want to back him 100%. All right. Thank you, Terry. Look at that T-shirt. What does this T-shirt well, say? <laughs> Terry, what's your T-shirt say? The only thing worse than COVID-19 would be Biden 20. So, and that's the truth. Thank you so and much, that's guys. That's the truth. God bless you, Terry. There you go. Thank you, Griff. We love Trump. All right, Brian, just seat. Back to you. All right, let's bring it. They're doing this stuff with smiles on their faces. If you can imagine that, it is another country out there. Holy covid, my friends, is my only reaction. Uh, what are these people going to do when when vi- when uh, vi- former vice president and now president elect Joe Biden is sworn in? I, there are some who say it's going to be violence. Others say it will be de- dejection and evaporation into the ether. I don't know the answer, but it's certainly scary. We have a voicemail number and that number is two one nine two David P. Here's something I've actually heard from a bunch of people about mask wearing. Listen to this. Hey, David. So everybody who works in my office takes the coronavirus pandemic seriously uh, when they're outside the office. But then once we get inside, they all take their masks off. They're not worried about social distancing or anything like that. And I'm the only one who keeps my mask on, keeps hand sanitizing. You know, Um, how bad do you think that this false sense of safety has contributed the coronavirus spread hugely. And I, I've heard from this from other people. I'm really good with my mask. It's mostly red states. I'm pretty sure that in blue states, every every place says you've got to have a mask on uh, at, at a place of work indoors. It's a generalization, blue and red states. But I've heard from people who, who work in Arkansas, for example, South Carolina, South Carolina is another example that uh, begrudgingly, you know, outdoors um, people will wear masks. They'll wear them at the grocery store, et cetera. But but then at their place of work, they take them off. And even if you work with only eight people and each of those eight people is only interacting at home with two others, you're still exposed to dozens of people's contacts. And I know of many people who have gotten sick this way. And again, most of the contagion is happening within homes and at places of work, particularly indoor places of work. So I don't really get it to me. The outdoor is less of a priority. I'm still doing it because I'm a team player, but the indoor, particularly when you're at work all day with people, when we know the longer you're around people, the more likely a a contagion uh, event is is to take place. I really don't get it at this point. I'm sort of beyond trying to understand the logic that folks are applying 
to when they do and don't wear masks. I, I, I'm sort of at a loss, but I've heard that from many people. We've got a great bonus show for you today. We will talk about the uh, potential extradition of Julian Assange. We will talk about Jack Ma and other Chinese billionaires, MIA after criticizing the Chinese government and much, much more. Get instant access to today's bonus show by becoming a member at joinpacman.com.